it's so good to see people connecting with each other and building those relationships. But yeah, let's, let's head back to our seats. Come on. Fun time's over, everyone. It's time to get serious. Um, I realized that at the beginning, Alice and I didn't introduce ourselves. And then I wasn't listening, so I don't know if Alice introduced herself later. But I'm Adam. Hello. Um, I'm one of the clergy here. Um, and I'm something called a curate, which is a, a word we use to describe a, a kind of vicar that is not totally in charge of everything, but learning. Uh, so I'm one of the curates at St. Thomas's, and I'm also about to head off to uh, lead a church graft, which is what we, um, the, the term we use to describe revitalizing a church community um, somewhere else. So we're, um, Abby and I, my wife, Abby is at the back. Um, we're taking a team from here to St. Luke's to revitalize that community. And that's an exciting opportunity, which we'd love to tell you more about if you want to come and catch at the end. But a number of people have already um, made some exciting commitments to come. And um, we're, I'm going to say it again, we're, we're getting excited um, about all that that has in store for us. So that's me. Welcome this morning. We are about to embark. I don't know if anyone um, remembers what the last teaching series was called. Empowered. Um, and we are about, I'm glad you remembered, I had a moment of blank there. Um, we're about to embark on our next teaching series. Now, what we've done here, we're cheating a little bit because like the last series, this one isn't really a series. We've just put a title on what are the ordinary Church of England readings for this set of Sundays. But it turns out that they are gold. Um, as often happens when you look back um, at the decisions and wisdom of um, the learned men and women of the past, the readings are absolute gold. Sometimes all it takes is a little bit of gathering together and sticking a name on it to make it feel like a coherent series. But actually, these are just the passages that churches across the Church of England will be reading in the next month and a half anyway. This next set of talks we are calling Radical Living. And I wonder what kind of picture that creates in your imaginations for you, what that looks like. How do you imagine, what do you think of when I say radical living? I mean, perhaps you're imagining, uh, and I recognize the irony of this given what I look like, a wildly bearded outcast, um, maybe living in the woods somewhere, shunning mainstream society. Don't know if anyone, has anyone seen the, um, the 2016 film Captain Fantastic? Stony silence. It is a bit niche, um, but it's got um, the guy that played Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings films. He's the lead in it. It's a great movie about a family that live in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, and then have to kind of reintegrate with society. Watch it, it's wonderful. And it's totally beside the point to this talk. It was really just an illustration of someone doing something radical, something completely nuts. Maybe it conjures up images of um, outrageous behavior when you think of radical living. Perhaps it's um, something like giving away all of your belongings or your money to the poor, something positive like that. Or perhaps it's protesting against um, or four causes that are really important to you, whether that's, I don't know, the environment or animal rights or um, benefits for people that need them. It could be that when you heard radical living, 
you heard radical and you thought fundamental. And of course, we hear a lot in the news about people being radicalized by religious leaders and becoming religious fundamentalists. Could that be a way of radical living? Maybe that's what you were thinking of. It's not what I'm going to talk about this morning, that kind of radical living, but fundamental does help us to unpack what radical means. A radical change is one that is complete, one that is total. It starts at the beginning and runs right through to the end. It's an action when it's radical that's one that causes a total change in nature. That's why when someone is radicalized, we say radicalized because there's been a total change in who they seemed to be. Only we normally mean that in a negative way. The word radical comes from a Latin word, the root of which means root. So when something is radical, normally we use it when we're talking about a change or a comparison. It starts at the very base. It starts at the root of what you're describing, and it goes on from there. It's a complete change. And radical, radical living is not just living different. It's, it's not just living unexpected. It's a total redefinition of what living even means from the roots and up. And that is what following Jesus is. It's a total redefinition of what living means. Following Jesus is radical from the roots and up. And over the next month or so, we'll be looking at a bunch of different aspects of what radical living with Jesus means. But to begin with today, we'll start at the beginning. We're going to start with the call. So if you could open your Bibles or the app on your phone or the web browser on your phone um, and let's read the Bible together. We're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 9. I'll give you a couple of seconds to get there. And we'll be beginning at verse 9. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Let me begin. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this passage is probably familiar to most people who have spent any time in the Bible. Anyone that's seen um, the uh, TV series The Chosen might have seen this episode in, I think it's episode seven of The Chosen, this moment when Matthew, the tax collector, is, is called by Jesus. Jesus is in Capernaum. Um, it's not massively relevant where that is, particularly to today, um, but Capernaum is Jesus' hometown. Not where he's from his hometown, 
but this is where he lives. So we often think of Jesus as being from Bethlehem or from Nazareth, but actually during his ministry, Jesus' base, the place where he moved to, and we learn this um, in chapter four of Matthew, is Capernaum. That's where Jesus makes his home and begins what we think of as his, his ministry. And Matthew, the writer of this record of Jesus' life and ministry, is describing the single most radical moment of change in his entire life. And he manages it in verse nine. And I'm boggled by how he does it. But why is it radical? Well, it's radical because as we just read in the passage, it's Jesus calling him. Jesus and everything that he did and the way he did everything was in some way radical, different from the root and up, unexpected, counterintuitive. God himself is inviting Matthew. It's a radical call because Jesus is calling. It's radical because of what and how Jesus is calling Matthew to. He asks so much with so little. Simply follow me. And yet he means drop everything, completely change your life. It's radical because Jesus also calls you. It's radical because of who Jesus is calling in this story. He's calling Matthew, who, spoiler, um, if you didn't know this, I'll probably go into it more in the sermon, but tax collectors were not that liked. Not in the way that no one in our country really likes paying taxes and it's a bit annoying to have to give some of your money, but in an actively negative way. They were taking money from people that they often couldn't afford to give and they were often doing so to line their own pockets. Even Matthew is called, despite, not, not sorry, despite who he is, but, but because of who he is. That's why it's radical. And it's radical because it's a call that continues on through Matthew's life. I'm struck by, in verse nine, that first verse, how Matthew manages in, in the original language just 22 words to describe this incredible moment of complete change in his life. It, it's, not the, um, it's not the sort of good flowery description I would give to the moment that I became a good person or the moment my fortunes changed. It's not the way, if you've read the Gospel of John, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, talks about himself. It's unassuming and it tries to be as factual as possible. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And so he got up and followed him. It's an absolute mic drop moment. It's bonkers, but it's, it's bonkers from both perspectives. Bonkers that Jesus would call someone so universally held in contempt and bonkers that Matthew would leave a position of unparalleled wealth and security to actually do it without apparently a second thought. He just gets up and follows. Now Matthew would have heard of Jesus around about the place. He's living in Capernaum um, and Jesus is living in Capernaum and Jesus is doing his thing. He's getting noticed. 
He's a well-known and popular kind of preacher. Perhaps he's even heard Jesus speak before, but we, we don't know that. As far as we know, this is their first face-to-face -face encounter. It is, however, profound. This first direct contact between the two of them. And why, after all, would Jesus, this well-known popular preacher, why would he go after a particular person? That's not how rabbis worked. They didn't go out and like um, drum up support and pick individual people. People came to them and said, could I study under you and learn from you? Great teacher. He's already turning things on their heads. This was like the top tier of education um, to learn directly under a great scholar. And so it was a way to really kind of level up in knowledge. It was a way to step out of any uh, feeling like an outcast because you'd be included. You are now part of the establishment. Um, but why was Jesus bothering with this outcast? Not even just to say hello, which would be kind, but to invite him into this disciple relationship. It, it's mad. And probably for anyone here who's a Christian, it's the same sort of experience you will have had. Why did he pick you? Matthew didn't have any other related experience that made him particularly qualified for the religious life or the disciples' life. I mean, we've already painted a bit of a picture of how arguably the opposite is true. But Jesus has seen something in Matthew. He values him and he wants him for a disciple. Not in spite of Matthew's Matthewness, but because of it. That same bonkers choice is true for me. But it can be really hard to see why Jesus wants to bother with you, just as it's really hard to see why Jesus wants to bother with Matthew. We now know that Matthew, um, he wrote this book that we've read from. He um, is a key feature in the early church. And no one knew that at the time. Matthew's life is going to change and look profoundly different from this point onwards. But even as he is trans transformed into a new, more godly person, his skills and his personality, the person that he is already, are called to serve the Lord. He's not got to change in order to serve the Lord. He starts straight away. A key point to that is the fact that we're reading this. Matthew would have been great at writing has an eye for detail, and he gets on board and writes this, one of the first and most detailed records of Jesus' life. Matthew's skills are repurposed and set to work in Jesus' cause because Jesus sees Matthew more deeply, more profoundly than anyone else ever has. And with that full knowledge of Matthew, he calls him, he wants him. There's no detailed rationale of why Matthew should do it. Jesus doesn't offer him a list of benefits, doesn't say, and of course, you'll get to see the world um, and people will like you and um, uh, there's a great house in it for you. None of those things, I mean, some of them weren't true, 
but also they weren't offered. Jesus literally just says, follow me. And somehow that is enough. Now, has anyone seen the chosen? I'm looking for hands. There's a few tentative hands. Um, so in episode seven, I, I would recommend it, by the way. The Chosen is a TV series that tries to um, dramatize stories from the New Testament, stories from Jesus' life. Um, it is not the Bible, but generally, I think it's fairly faithful to the Bible. Um, it, it uses dramatic license um, for some stuff to make it more watchable because it is a TV series. Um, but I've had some real profound moments um, watching it where I've, I've seen a story in a way that I just had never thought of it before because all the blanks are filled in by the background and the scenery and the other characters. And so I would recommend it. Um, in episode seven, we see this moment, the call of Matthew. And there's a moment where Matthew locks eyes with Jesus. And obviously it's a TV show, so this didn't happen in real life, I would imagine. But everything goes kind of quiet. The background music comes on. And it's a little bit windy and whispery. And Jesus has got long hair and it's slow motion and it's sort of flowing in the background. Um, I'm embellishing a little bit. But there's this moment where we're seeing the enormity of Matthew's decision. We're seeing this moment where Jesus connects directly with Matthew. It's like Jesus really sees Matthew for the first time. And Matthew's like a rabbit in the headlights. He can't get out of the way. He's just been seen by the creator of the world. And in the series, he says, more than just follow me. But we know from scripture, he just says, follow me. So much more has been said, but not in words. The very fact that Jesus is even asking Matthew means so much more than we can fully imagine. This knowledge sort of passes between them and then Jesus calls him and Matthew just gets up and goes. One thing that the series helps us to show is the profound difference that that makes to Matthew's life but also the enormity of the decision. Not only um, was he giving up what was probably a very wealthy and lucrative position, some security there, but it wasn't a reversible choice. He was unlikely to be given his job back, having quit it. Um, aside from that, someone else would be doing the job pretty quickly because it was a very important role to the ruling, um, to the ruling class. He wouldn't be getting any other jobs because everybody hated him. So no one was going to give him a job, given what his background was. Fishermen could go back and do a little bit of freelance fishing on the side. There's not a lot of freelance tax collecting up for grabs. This is a complete, all-in, life-change moment. It's an enormous, one-way decision, a forever choice, with huge consequences. But in that moment, Jesus sees and shows himself to Matthew. And the decision's made. I wonder if you've ever met anyone like that. I wonder if you've ever 
had that moment with Jesus where you feel seen and he asks you to do something, so you just do it. Well, if it's a big deal for Matthew, we can certainly see that Jesus is also all in for Matthew. In verse 10, I'm so sorry, it does speed up. We're already at, we're only one verse in. Um, but in verse 10, Matthew has a party at his house. Not only does he have a party at his house, but Jesus comes. And that is a sign of acceptance and intimacy on Jesus' part with this person who is otherwise completely um, outcast by society. He sits with Matthew's kind, presumably Matthew's friends and acquaintances, says many tax collectors and sinners in the scripture. Often I think people worry about what others will say about them when they become a Christian. Well, what will people say if I tell them that I become a Christian? Will they think I'm a weirdo? Will they think I'm boring? Will they think I've been radicalized? But Matthew's account here doesn't focus at all on what people will think of Matthew. Focuses entirely on what people thought of Jesus for having done the calling in the first place. Jesus is ready for the critique. In, in verse 12, he issues the now famous line, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It feels pretty self-explanatory, this one, to me. Uh, something we can all relate to. Everyone's um, been poorly at some point and had to go to the doctor or go to the pharmacist and get something to help them. But we don't really give it a second thought when we're well. But what we might miss is that this is not just a defense of Jesus' actions and choices, but it's also a damning critique of the Pharisees and the way that their system worked. These are the people that were bringing that question to Jesus' disciples. It didn't concern itself with those who it condemned. It just condemned them and left them. Rather than focusing on those, uh, sorry, rather than focusing on the people that needed it, it focused on those who were already doing it right. And how was that in any way fulfilling the call to be a blessing to all, to be a blessing to all nations? Jesus is pointing out gently that perhaps they're not got the right emphasis. He goes on to quote a verse from an Old Testament book um, called Hosea. It's from a passage about repentance um, and the way that God's people repent, so say sorry, but not only that, but turn back to God, how they love him, or as the case may be, how they don't love him. It's from Hosea chapter 6 the same place that we get one of our confessions that we um, use sometimes, not the one from today, but you may remember it, where we say, our love for you is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early, where we remember that um, we often have a fickleness to our heart. In verse 13, um, Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, for I desire steadfast love or mercy, I think it says in this um, instance, and not sacrifice for the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus has come not for the righteous, but for sinners. And this is not a totally ironic use of the word righteous, because by their own definition, the Pharisees were righteous. They were right with God. They were doing all the right things. 
It's just their definition was wrong. Jesus came neither for those who are actually without sin, I've not met one yet, but nor did he come for those who are congratulating themselves because they believe they've done enough. Particularly because they appear to make no effort to bring those who they say haven't done enough closer to God. Instead, they remain satisfied in their own righteousness. They condemned not just the sin, but the sinner as well. And this is a great moment for us all to think about how bad the Pharisees were. But I wonder where we do that as well. Where we're pretty satisfied with where we've got to and we don't invite others in. Where we're, we're ready to condemn the sinners and the sins and we're not ready to show them where to get out of that cycle. Because the thing is, sacrifice is not enough. This is the idea of paying back your own sin, paying back for your own sin, outwardly doing the necessary to acknowledge it and make it right. But paying our way is not on its own enough, even if it were possible. And thank God for that. If you, if you don't know, if you've not heard the gospel before, it's the story of the whole of creation. God created us, we're in perfect relationship with him, and then humanity sinned. They put themselves first, they turned away from God, and it ruined our relationship. It meant that we couldn't connect with God anymore. And that's the source of all the stuff that we see and experience in the world is bad. It's all from sin, from putting ourselves first. Uh, and God set up a system of sacrifices to help us try to show that we wanted to be better, to help us try to pay back for the sin. But it wasn't enough. It didn't work. We could never get it right. So he used the same system and he made it work. He came himself in the person of Jesus and died so that no one else had to so that no other animals had to, so that no other sacrifice had to be made. Because ultimately God wants a heart change, not sacrifices of things. He wants a heart change and a change in our behavior. But it's the knowledge or the acknowledgement of God that he wants, really. And out of that flow our behavior changes. From a correct posture of the heart, that's what comes the rest of it. So Matthew got up and followed Jesus at the simple invitation, follow me, because his heart had changed. And then his behavior reflected it. And his behavior continued to reflect it on and on as he went on walking with Jesus. When Jesus looks you in the eye, whether metaphorically or in a more literal sense, and he sees you for all you are, when Jesus knows you like that and still says, follow me, it is life-changing. wonder if you remember when that happened to you. 
For some of us, that will be part of our story. Um, but for others, uh, it's something new. Maybe it's something that intrigues you and you'd like to know more about. It's something that could happen to you today. But for every Christian, it's the beginning of our story. But the story doesn't stop there. The call doesn't stop there. The radical call of Jesus is not a one-time experience. Even those who have had a profound and deep faith for years and years and years still hear afresh the follow me of Jesus in their lives. In, in my life, it's happened several times. I've, um, I've always been a Christian. I couldn't tell you when Jesus called me to be a Christian because it's always been there. I grew up in church and I would always have called Jesus my best friend or um, my savior or called God my father at different times as I grew up. But I've still heard the follow me of Jesus. Sometimes I've heard it and not, not acted on it. And other times I have. Um, my notes say, tell story of 2009. Um, and I think I remember which bit I wanted to say, but I'm, I'm hoping I get it right. In, in 2009, I was working in, in the Highlands in Scotland. And um, uh, Abby, my wife and I, we've been together since we were kids, but we were in true friends style on a break. Um, so we'd, we'd broken up. It wasn't a break break. We, we were pretty sure this was, this was it. We weren't, we weren't getting back together at all. Um, and I, I was a Christian, but I wasn't really, um, I wasn't doing anything particularly interesting or exciting or particularly difficult for Jesus at this point. I wasn't doing anything massively costly in my life. Um, you know, I read the Bible a bit and I was nice to people. Um, and when push came to shove, I would probably side with churchy stuff, but I wasn't really on fire. And um, I was essentially chasing um, what I wanted to do, and it wasn't a bad thing, and chasing what you want to do is not always a bad thing. But along with that was a fair amount of running away um, from other stuff in my life that I needed to deal with. Uh, I was working as an adventurous activities instructor, multiple different activities, and uh, I sustained an injury um, to my left shoulder, I was, I was kayaking and I dislocated my left shoulder. Um, and uh, for those that have ever dislocated a limb, it's quite owie, um, but also doesn't heal straight away and can stop you from being able to do physical stuff. So I dislocated my shoulder, had this big sort of, um, it didn't feel like it would be at the time, but what turned out to be a life-changing injury and because it prevented me from continuing doing what I was doing. And I found myself back here in Newcastle, which is where I grew up, um, in my parents' house, which is not where I wanted to be, um, trying to recover, trying to rehabilitate myself. And whilst I was rehabbing my shoulder and missing the ski season, um, which I was very disappointed about, God spoke to me. And I realized, you know, if, if I don't, if I don't read my Bible now, when I have literally nothing else to do, when will I do that? If I don't put time aside in my day when there is no other pressure, how will I ever manage that at any other time? And so I knuckled down and I did that. 
not loads to start with. Obviously, I committed, you know, like eight hours of Bible reading, eight hours of praying every day, and it clearly didn't work. But gradually, I built up. And God called me back um, into my relationship with, with Abby. We're now married, but that happened a few years later. Um, he called me to move to Bristol, which is a long way from the Highlands. And he called me to work for a church, not because in my mind at the time he particularly wanted me to, but because that was the only place I could get a job. And if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here today doing any of this. But I had to hear Jesus' call. And when he said, follow me, I had to say, yes. I had to get up and follow him. So where is your radical call today? If you score um, the level of invitation, how inviting and appealing something is, and the level of challenge, so how, um, how much is expected of a person to see them do it, often um, we would say something was medium challenge and high invitation when we talk about it in church because... We don't want to scare people off. We want to make it really invitational. We don't want to make it seem too unattainable. Making things seem really doable and low-key and then inviting people to join in. But the reality is that your radical call today probably isn't like that. Sorry. It's probably very high invitation, but also extremely high challenge. To get up and follow Jesus cost Matthew literally everything. And if you do it right, it will cost you everything too. But he will give you all of himself in return. I don't feel poor or like I'm without things, but in many ways I've given up lots of my dreams for my life. I have new dreams that God's given me are far more fulfilling, far more useful. Now, whether the outward change in your lifestyle or how others experience you needs to change in a huge way or a relatively small way, Jesus demands all of your heart. Fundamentally, he wants all of you. Jesus' call is radical. It takes you back to the very root of who you are and then builds you back up from there, growing with Jesus. It's a whole life call. And God is still radically calling you today. Whether, like Matthew, you've heard of Jesus, but today this is the time that you hear him say, follow me. And you feel a yes in your heart. It will be a life-changing moment and it will require all of you, but whatever it costs, he will pay you back a hundredfold as you get to know him. Uh, a few years ago, Jesus called a group of already Christians a few years to, uh, ago to plant this church here. And I think they would all say it was hard, but Jesus has provided everything they needed for them. And look what he's done. 
in the coming months there's another this church graft to St. Luke's and people are being called into that it's not always about the church though some people have been called to pray for a place or a people to change their life and routine to do what God's asking them to do is God calling you to give something up or is God calling you to take something up some people feel very called to their profession. Others don't. But we're called to follow Jesus in those places and in those settings. So whether you feel called to be, whether it's a, a doctor, for example, or whether you find yourself in a job where you just don't really love the work, you're still called to follow Jesus there. Where is Jesus asking for all of you? And where have you not yet given it? When he says, follow me, where are you called to radical living? Where in your life have you not answered Jesus' call? Can I invite the band to come back up? As we do that, we just remember that The life with Jesus and the call of Jesus is radical because it is Jesus' calling. It's radical because of what he's asking you to do and how he's asking. He's asking so much with so little. And it's radical because Jesus calls you. Not the you you tell other people about or the you you put on Instagram, but the whole of you not despite who you are, but because of who you are. And it's radical because it keeps going. It's not a one-off, one-time call. It's a lifelong, follow me, that will go on forever. I wonder if you would stand with me as we respond in worship. In a moment, I'm going to encourage the parents to go and um, retrieve their children because when we respond, it doesn't matter what we've been hearing or doing, we can all respond together and we want the kids to be part of our response in worship. But before we do that, um, if you feel comfortable or if you don't feel comfortable but you're willing to anyway, please close your eyes. And I want you to imagine whatever it looks like in your head, imagine Jesus is looking at you. You can imagine the flowing hair in the wind if you like. As he looks at you, he knows everything. He knows the thing you did a couple of days ago that you're not so proud of. He knows every achievement you've ever had. He knows what others think of you and he knows what you think of yourself. But he looks at you, he knows you and asking you to spend the rest of your life with him. He says, follow me. 
just see Jesus seeing you, saying, follow me. Let me pray, come Holy Spirit. Would you convict us in our hearts of the ways that we need to follow you? The areas of our lives that we've not yet said yes. Do you help us to get up, follow? Whether our big decisions, would we make them for you? that shadowy corner of our life. 